0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and today we have another great interview in store for you all. I chat with Vega Shaw. She's a formal environmental genomicist who studied marine bacteria in her dissertation work, and she's gone on to transition into the world of software for biologists, uh, what some call tech bio. Uh, She's now a program manager at Benchling, and she isn't the first person from Benchling that I've interviewed on the show. We also had Casey Kraft all the way back at episode four, um, who talked about her work as an implementation scientist. Um, So it's great to have another Benchling guest back on the show. Um, It's an awesome company that's done a ton of work to create great software for biologists and really help to advance the world of electronic lab notebooks. Um, So if you're interested in what's going on in tech bio and what some of the challenges are uh, with this field, I think you'll learn a lot from Vega Shaw's work today. Uh, Before we jump in, this episode is sponsored by LabDAO, another platform for biologists. They're integrating all kinds of tools on Plex. It's a command line interface and you can run all different types of software uh, right from your laptop. I actually was a computational biologist when I was in graduate school and hadn't opened up my terminal in a while and was able to get onto Plex, follow their documentation, uh, great documentation, um, and be able to run some of the latest and greatest tools out there uh, things like CollabFold, RF Diffusion. Uh, Diff Doc, if that's all a word jumble for you, no worries, but encourage you to check out what LabDAW is doing. And thanks so much for sponsoring this episode. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Vega Shah. Great. So today I get to welcome Dr. Vega Shah to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Shaw, you recently went through a career transition. You joined the amazing company of Benchling, which I'm a big fan of. I've used the software frequently throughout my career since it was an option for me. Um, For those who don't know, it's an electronic lab notebook primarily. Um, But we're going to get into some of the awesome new integrations and tools that Benchling is working on. Um, So tell us a bit about this move. What prompted the move to Benchling and what was your kind of job search like? Yeah,
1: um, I think thing had been on my radar for a long time um, for exactly the reasons you just described. I had used it as a lab scientist, both in like my academic research as a graduate student and postdoc, and then also when I worked at a startup um, and just like loved the product, right? It was at the time when I was first introduced to it, there was nothing like it. Like there was no just freely available ELN for academics. And also it was just so the user interface was just so nice, so modern. And I think there's this like, someone told me this and it always stays in my mind that like biology is very complex. And so it's actually difficult to build software for biology so that the the software itself is complex enough, but also doesn't turn into this like clunky bag of features. Right. So I think benching was like perfect for that. And I always had, you know, great regard for it as a product. Um, and then I was previously already working in biotech software at another kind of electronic lab NOMA company. So that transition was fairly smooth and that the people that use the product are very similar. Um, and yeah, the stars just sort of aligned. I, Happened to talk to the right people and they're like, yeah, we have a role for you. So pretty excited to be there.
0: That's awesome. And you mentioned you were at another ELN company before that. And I know you've worked on some of these other tools that are definitely in this, I would say, upper echelon of software for biologists. So you worked on um, GraphPad, which is part of Prism. or Am I mixing that up? It's Prism is part of GraphPad. Is that correct? That's right, like yeah. Prism's the software. Yeah. Yeah, which is one of, the, you know, in my opinion's best tools out there for making oh. really beautiful plots for scientific data or any kind of data set. Can you talk about um what you were doing with that tool? What that uh, product development looked like?
1: Absolutely. Um so so GraphPad Prism is owned by like the mother company, Dotmatics, and there was this like big merger and acquisition that happened maybe like a year and a half, maybe two years ago. Uh, My role there was integrating GraphPad Prism with like an electronic lab notebook. Um, Part exactly how you described Prism is super well loved. Uh, People use it for statistical analysis um, and creating these beautiful graphs. Uh, with the one downside that it's on your desktop, right? So it's very hard to uh, share what you create there or the method of how you create it too. Um, So my role there was integrating uh, Prism with uh, like a cloud platform like .matics as ELN and making sure people are able to get not just those images, but also the, the actual data in the Prism file and sometimes the method. So like the template of the Prism into a cloud-based platform um, it, with the goal to say, hey, if I create a graph, my coworker should be able to recreate that exact same graph using their data, right? Um, so being able to collaborate and share your method within Prism.
0: Wow, that sounds so useful. I know in my own research right now, we currently just share the Prism files over Slack, for instance, and... Agree that you know having some kind of ELN integration for that, where someone can easily reproduce your your plots, would be so useful. I didn't even know that was a, a part of Dotmatics, um, and and you know, great for our listeners to know that there are these different options as far as ELNs out there and um, software for plotting your data um, to to make it look really beautiful and readable. That's something I always appreciated about the Prism software was that um, the readability and just the formatting of the, the plots in the default uh, conditions um, are really lovely. And I'll have to maybe share some of those examples um, for people. So let's take a step back because you actually got your PhD in environmental genomics, Um, and, and we've had some overlap actually, like we've both worked and studied at UC Berkeley and university of Washington, I think maybe at the same times. Um, but we, I don't think we've ever met in person. Um, but how did you become interested in environmental genomics and what was it like, you know, choosing where to do your dissertation work?
1: Yeah. Um, great questions, uh, also, yes, I was surprised that we had very similar paths and never, never interacted. But they're big public schools, so <laughs> maybe that was it. Um, yeah. So, I for me, like the interest in environmental genomics started when I was an undergrad at Berkeley. Actually, I I was looking for. Uh, I knew I wanted to do research, uh, and I was like looking for an undergrad research role. I ended up working at this really well-known research lab led by Dr. Jill Banfield. Um, And she's sort of well-known for pioneering uh, environmental metagenomics. Uh, What that means is, you know, it's very hard for us to know what's going on in the environment because the systems are so complex. You know, usually there are many hundreds of species involved in like processes in the environment. You can go sequence everything. You can shotgun sequence everything and then make sense of the data later. Um, so she really brought that science to to kind of studying the environment. And her group like looks at uranium-contaminated mines, like how can we uh bioremediate? They look at like uh aquifers, they look at all these like interesting places where you can find metabolic activities. And um the goal is to really, it's like they're in their gold rush era. The goal is to go prospecting and find novel metabolic activity, find novel species, find novel metabolic activities, and then use it for various things, right? Like for biotech, for agriculture, um, and even like drugs. So they they get funding from NSF and Department of Energy to just go out and prospect. And I, to me, that was like really exciting. And uh, what better place to prospect? Than the ocean, right? That's like the part of the world we know so little about. Um, So I had these great kind of tools that I learned in Jill's lab, and I went to UW um, to specifically kind of hunt for novel metabolic activity in the ocean. Um,
0: Yeah. Wow. Can you give us a very broad strokes overview of what the data processing looks like for those types of samples? Because as someone who hasn't done a lot of metagenomics myself, I'm always curious how you go from this big pool of different sequences from all these different organisms to something meaningful. And, and maybe if you could highlight like a day that you found something <laughs> in yeah. your prospecting. Yeah. Um,
1: so when I was doing that research, I would do two different approaches, actually. One was Uh, to just collect lots of samples and sequence everything in it. And then the other approach is doing this like selective isolation. So you uh, get the sample and then you, this is a very kind of popular microbial technique where you just do serial dilution to end up with like just one cell per well in a 96 well plate. And then when that, when those cells proliferate, you know that they're all a single species And you sequence all the single species, right? So those are kind of two paths to to finding out information. Um, The the metagenomic part varies a lot. So if you talk to different people, they will tell you they do different things. But a lot of it was sort of collecting uh, the sample and then filtering down tons of it, right? Because you were trying to get the biomass onto a filter uh, from like gallons and gallons of like water. Um, And then you extract the DNA. And a lot of times you you might want to amplify, like say you're looking for specifically microbes, you're going to go amplify one portion of a microbial genome that allows you to identify it. And it's called the 16S. Um, so you go in and do kind of PCR to amplify certain parts of the genome, and then you send it off to like Illumina sequencing. Um, the other the single cell sort of isolation. That was the method that was most successful for the lab I worked in. So we ended up discovering a new species of bacteria, um, Thioglobus autotrophicus, that um, we kind of identified one, you know, using that 16s sequence that we found in it, you can kind of look at its similarity against everything that's available in the database and know that, oh, this is actually a novel species. It's never been discovered before.
0: Um, wow! Yeah, yeah, and and that's the paper where you published the the genome of this new species, which I'm going to struggle to say, but it's the uh, Candidatus Theoglobus autotrophicus.
1: That's right. Yeah,
0: nice. That's awesome. And so, like, what what was that day like when you realized that it was something completely new? Um. So we it, it takes a lot of
1: sort of checking, right? You you spend a lot of time finding stuff similar to it in available databases. So currently there's GenBank, right? It has, I would say like the world's repository of, of genomic data. Um, but then there are organizations like the Joint Genome Institute uh, at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab that Actually has a more curated like microbial um, repository, right? So you basically are like blasting your sequences against these large databases to see how similar your novel species DNA is to these other species. And you can do it with that, like I said, that 16S region of microbial genomes is basically like their ID card, right? It's like, here's who I am. And if it doesn't match anybody else, then you're new. Right. Um, But then once you do, oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, so there's a lot of like, kind of like double checking involved because maybe some of the data for these different species and genomes are in different databases. And so you're kind of like having to go to different places and make sure that when you say we found something new, that's true. Is that Accurate. Exactly.
1: exactly. And you're hoping that what the public databases are in fact complete and are making available everything that's been discovered thus far, right? So you're 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 making sure that all the world's public databases don't have something like it.
0: Yeah. Wow. Do you think because I've been wondering this about just scientific publications in general and the fact that it's relatively challenging to scrape like all of the papers that have been published. Um, and the license, licenses for these papers are different. And so if we really wanted to build a database of like all of the existing scientific knowledge, that is a more challenging, um, Task than you might think. Do you think it's a little better for sequencing data, like you're talking about, as compared to publications? Uh,
1: I would say no. Okay. (laughs) It was definitely it's definitely a struggle. I think for sequencing data, maybe maybe the one thing that that is good is that we have these publicly funded repositories like uh, NCBI and you know GenBank. where when you submit something to them, they kind of make you go through a process of standardizing what you're submitting, right? And adding metadata and inf- enough information. Um, but if that research didn't, wasn't funded say by the US government and was done some, you know, in, in a country where it's not a prerequisite to submit to NCBI, it might just be in that paper and then the way to scrape it is actually kind of difficult. One, it might be behind the paywall, but also um, the formats used for sequence files vary a lot. Um, even the in amount of metadata people provide varies a lot or what method did they use for sequencing. Um, so there's a lot lot of information that's missing. And then even when you look at GenBank data, there's a lot of information that's you're not required to actually submit it. It's a best practice, but People just don't have it, or choose not to, and then you're you're working with like incomplete information. It, it feels like pretty much all the time.
0: <laughs> wow, yeah, I think that that gives folks an appreciation for how challenging it can be to navigate some of these databases and even get a hold of data that people have spent time and money um, generating and um, you know using for their own research. It's one of the bigger challenges, I think, as far as being able to make real progress, uh, across these types of fields. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, your PhD was several years ago. Have you been following this field of metagenomics, um, even now that you're kind of outside of it and, and working at Benchling and have there been any, um, Updates to how this type of research is done, or anything that's come out recently that you're excited about? Um, yeah,
1: I, I mean, I think I follow it to a certain extent, uh, but not maybe as much as I used to. Um, a lot of people that do that research actually use Benchling, so there's definitely an overlap. And my role at Benchling is very much sort of uh, working on you know, messaging around how benching is used for biological research. So there's definitely an overlap in like what I did in my PhD and what I do now as work. But um, I think the advances I see now are one, you know, adopting tools that standardize that research data, definitely seeing that um, a lot of people will talk about the fair data principles. Um, and then The other thing I'm seeing is sequencing keeps getting more and more affordable, which means you can do you can one sequence more things, but then you can also have greater depth of sequencing. So sequence the same things again and again to be sure like what you have. And then I see a lot of advancements in like um, lab automation. Right. So some of the methods that are used to study these environments like I described serial dilution um, you can greatly scale that if you had like a robot doing it right instead of a maybe like a graduate student or postdoc and companies like opentrons are really like um, introducing more affordable options for academic labs to like take take it use lab automation in their processes so i think all of those are really exciting advancements because i think there's still a lot to be discovered in the ocean in terms of what species are active that i i believe there's tons of like metabolic activities or novel genes out there that we could use for various things so that higher throughput and cheaper sequencing combo is really accelerating the pace of discovery
0: very cool um Getting back to your role now as a product manager, is it product manager or program manager? I would describe it more as program
1: manager because I'm responsible for uh, like our messaging around biological research. Um, and then also, in some ways, kind of collecting feedback from customers on like how they use the product um, and maybe even like, what do they want to see in the product?
0: Were there aspects of your dissertation work or your postdoc work that made you think, I see myself in more of this program manager role? I'm just curious, like, what parts of your day-to-day of doing scientific research led you to pursue a career in this kind of side of the world? Not
1: really. Like I don't think I would have described it. In- it in those words, um, but I think there were a lot of maybe things I was doing at the time without realizing it that probably were a good fit for this role. I think uh, being able to work with a lot of different groups and bring that data together, you know, being kind of, I guess, cross-functional is the term for it. I did that quite a bit in in my academic research because what we like the research that we were doing required people with the chemistry background to help us sort of do analytic analytical chemistry on the samples and then people that had more of a you know even more of a bioinformatics background than myself to kind of help us with data munging and then you know various roles were involved just bringing everything together. That was, I, at the time now, when I look back, that was kind of my strong suit, like talking to all the groups, figuring out what was needed and then turning an idea into like a reality. Um, I, at the time wasn't actively like, Oh, this, this will make me good at product. Um, but once I, you know, my first few roles in industry were definitely lab based. Um, but then I started to lean more into, like, my what my personality also wanted, which was, like, definitely interacting with more people, being cross-functional. And I really liked working with people that were, like, had different skill sets than myself. Because to me, that was always, like, just by interacting with them, I'm learning, like, new things, right? Yeah. Um That that was always there. I think I, I leaned into it more in my, like, second or third year of being in industry where I mm-hmm. started to think about jobs that fit both my technical skill, but also my personality.
0: Nice. And I know you tweet a little bit about some of the cultural differences between academia and industry. I'm wondering if you can highlight a few of those for our listeners.
1: Yeah. um, In the most positive way possible, I think when you're in academia, you you succeed by being like a really good individual contributor, right? Like, and you can continue being like an IC all the way up into your professorship, right? Like really your goal when you are seeking tenure is um, publications um, and to a certain level, like success if you're graduate students. But you're still kind of, if if you translate that role into it, industry you're still an individual contributor um i think to do well in industry if your goals are more traditional like you're going up the corporate ladder you have to start being more of a leader and more of like a being able to take the backseat and play like a support role right Mm -hmm. so especially when you're like a manager you need to be able to uh not get super involved in the technical side and like help someone do that. Um, And then also modulate the way you are with different reports because different people need different types of support when you're a manager. Those things don't quite develop as much in academia, but in industry you have to build that muscle quite a bit. Right. Um, Yeah. So I I see that it kind of shows in the culture too, where I think, having lots of publications is the, the best quality you can have, right? In academia, if you want to succeed, first author papers are amazing. I think that's, if you were applying to industry, I think first author papers would be impressive, but it's far more important to be like a good team player, be someone that can communicate uh, both what you're good at, but also like have self-awareness that I'm not good at this. I need to seek help from someone. You know, all those qualities are very amplified in the industry.
0: You have this amazing substack uh, called the aliquot, where you write about different topics, mostly related to biotech and tech bio. Um, And you recently wrote an article about the disparities in the user experience for software that's built for biologists as compared to something like regular software that consumers use, for instance, you know, Google or Amazon. Um, can you highlight a few of those disparities and why you think um, there are these big differences in the user experience of this type of software?
1: Sure, yeah. Um, I'm so glad we're talking about this. I think this is like one of those things that is on my mind all the time. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, But if if you talk to anyone, and I think, Jocelyn, you might agree on this too, when you work in a research lab, all those sort of interfaces that you interact with, like the, the computer that comes with the instrument and the software that comes, you know, with the instrument, or even some of the software that we're using for data entry is not great. Right. Like we're still kind of a little bit in the past. Um, and if you compare that with other fields, like say edu- education tech or um financial tech right they're they've kind of crossed that hump of like i don't know old user interfaces uh so so i i keep you know that makes me wonder like why is biology so behind why don't we have better software like all, all of us use google we've used like facebook and twitter so we know what a modern platform looks like uh, why, why is that missing from biotech? Um, and I, I think that article is very, very much kind of like pondering as to what it could be. And I think one of the things, and uh, Jesse Johnson, who writes Scaling Biotech, also uh, kind of confirms my suspicions in his writing that like biologists, because we work with such complex systems, um, we, when something works, we just, we don't want to change it. Right. Like it it works. So even if it takes 30 steps instead of two steps, just do it because there's so little control we have over living things. Right. Um, I think that same sort of mentality applies to how we manage our data and software that if it works, just don't worry about how it looks. And certainly, like generally in academia, the like function over form. Uh, mental state is like omnipresent, right? Because you don't really have the budget to make things look nice. You just need things to work. And a lot of things, you're the first person ever doing that thing. So you're completely focused on function. Um, I think that that plays into how software is built for biologists and also what biologists accept as like an okay thing to do. Um, But I think that's changing because we're starting to realize that the UX is not just about how it looks, but it's also how we we're more likely to adopt software that is easy to use. Uh, that makes sense. Um, it's also easier to train people when, you know, they're trying to establish like new ELN in a company. And it, it, it helps us trust software more. It's this like weird thing. Like we trust Structure. We trust things that are uh, have nice ratios. <laughs> I, I honestly think it's like a very uh, key aspect of getting people to kind of digitize their records is to they should feel they trust the software.
0: Interesting. I like that point. I hadn't thought about trust with regards to software before, and how that plays into our relationship with it. But I like that. One of the things I've always respected about Benchling's approach to software, not only with the the interface itself and, and you know, it's a really beautiful design, it's more modern looking than some of these other ELNs out there, um, is that they have always had a large team of implementation scientists that really hold your hand as you're Learning how to use the software and modify it to work for you. So, you know, if you're an environmental genomicist, you might have a specific, um, you know, data types that you're putting in. You might have specific um, registry details like all kinds of bacteria samples that you're trying to keep track of. Whereas someone on in a different field uh, might interact with that electronic lab notebook in a very different way. And I think that has proven to be a very successful model for onboarding people to the software and actually making it work for them. Um, And I think that's a step that, um, you know, a lot of tech bio might be missing um, or (laughs) might not be investing in as much um, at this point in time that's just my observation of the field um absolutely
1: um yeah uh benchling is is one of the reasons I wanted to go work there is it's a true hybrid between this like world-class uh tech company so it's taking a lot of fits um the way it's structured from successful SaaS companies like Salesforce or Viva um, and then also hiring people that have that like biological expertise. So the implementation team is a great example of like biology experts doing your implementation. But then if you look at the build team, which is like product and development, they're have a very strong software background. So you really have this like true amazing hybrid between all all the best people. And I, that's one of the reasons I love working there. You just, end up learning so much because there are so many experts there um but then they also invest in like customer success um and you know the, the implementation team and also a lot of like ux and design uh which again not a lot like you don't see as much investment in ux and design teams at other biotech companies it's just Maybe not in the culture or maybe the budget doesn't allow for it, but Benchling truly has, you know, kind of invested in that, which is pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I want to come back to, to a point you made about form versus function, because it's interesting, like, in the, I guess, intersection of computation and biology, how varied the... um Interaction can be, and and you know what you're trying to get out of a piece of of software, um, and and biologists are using everything from command line interfaces, uh, GitHub, writing their own code, AWS, um, you know, all of these kind of different platforms in a sense, um, to try to understand biology or understand the science. Um, so it it's also just, I think. Spread out in a way as far as what, you know, where people are having these interactions and um, the quality within those platforms um, can be quite different. Um, I'm curious, like, if you have any thoughts uh, outside of this ELN world about where tech bio could really change the game as far as um, biology goes.
1: Yeah, um, and I think when I like when I talk about tech bio, I have to maybe compartmentalize like two versions of me. Like the the version that's involved in the biotech software community uh, and like organizations like Bits and Bio. There, like tech bio is a very exciting thing to talk about, right? Like this idea of engineering led biology um, is is fairly exciting. Um, but then I also have to think of like the day to day of scientists, and when you like talk to just an average like someone that's working at the bench, to them, tech bio sounds like like tech snobbery, saying they're going to solve something in someone else's field without fully understanding it, right? So for me, the like uh, tech bio companies that I think are the most successful and like the best ones are the ones that say yes we can use engineering to solve biological problems but also understand that biology is extremely complex and that a lot of biologists have actually tried that already to understand the history of what's been done before going in and saying software is going to solve all these problems right um so i think there's definitely those two like that pull and push and pull of people who are at the bench saying what the heck and then people who are super in the like tech world going, we'll solve all these problems. But I think there's a middle ground and that's where a lot of the rich interactions are happening. Um, My hope for tech bio is truly like some of the applications uh, using AI and ML for drug discovery. Um, A lot of the like um, creating better software for automation and controlling automation remotely. Like all of those are really exciting for me and I, I definitely see a future there. So (laughs)
0: Yeah. And on that note, I know Benchling's been working really hard to add some new integrations that you've mentioned recently. Can you share one or two highlights for you as far as some of these new tools that um, scientists can interact with within the Benchling platform?
1: Yeah. So yeah, so tons of integrations uh, were launched in April. Um, some of the highlights were so you can use AlphaFold from within BenchLing now uh, to predict three dimensional protein structures. Uh, the other great one was us being able to integrate with Jump, the statistical analysis tool, uh, both sending data back and then getting data from Jump into BenchLing. And then uh, also integrations with two other cloud platforms Pluto Bio and Watershed. Um, which are kind of, they're startups, they're new, new in the field, but really great platforms up and coming. So Pluto Bios, also kind of like statistical analysis and Watershed does more on the bioinformatics side. Um, so lots of integrations and definitely more on the roadmap. So we're going to keep rolling out integrations. Um, with this idea that, you know, when you, when you go look at a research lab, no one's ever using just one software. It, it rarely happens, and, and Jocelyn, you would agree. You're probably using three or four different things in your like research ecosystem, and not just one. So any platform that is good at integrating is probably going to be so much more useful than something that's sort of closed and uh, you can't get data out, or you have to really spend a lot of time to get data in. Right?
0: Yeah, and and you kind of touched on this earlier, but Um, how, how scientists interact with software, even the types of research that they're doing is so varied that one of the challenges I hear from the tech bio world is that when they go out to do that kind of customer product feedback, there's just so many different options for what they can integrate or improve on. Um, that it's hard to focus and like move the product forward. So how have you had a view into how Benchling goes about that process? Um, Because obviously you serve so many different scientists across the globe. Um, There's so many of these integrations you could be doing. Um, What's the process like for selecting a specific tool? Like, is the team, you know, meeting with different people and then deciding together on that? Um, and what's the onboarding like for a new tool? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, so, i'll I'll speak to as much as I have expertise on, but basically, um, well, so benching the registry is designed to be super flexible, so really ingest. A lot of different types of information and then the specificity comes in when the implementation team gets involved right so that's when they kind of customize it for the customer's need but the product itself is super super flexible you can have types of schemas and types of biological entities and really it's you can put whatever you want right um in terms of integrations the decision is based on like is there overlap between users and is that other Platform or a company willing to have a conversation about integration because you kind of need this partnership. Um, and then we actually have a strategy team that goes in and talks to them. And um, you know, first first strategy gets involved. They discuss like what are what are some possibilities, and then product gets involved in talking about how that integration could you know be implemented or put in the product, and then. Um, then we launch it. So we basically, uh, usually do like a little demo of what it looks like. So users can see it. Um, most of the integrations are, are just included in the, so there's no like extra charge you, when you, uh, you know, when the new version comes out, you get it in there. Um, yeah, that's been basically the process so far.
0: Nice. That that's helpful to know. Um, I know a, a bunch of people who are looking into, you know, adding new tool sets and um, working in this field, and so I think it's helpful to learn what the process is like at a, a larger company like Benchling. Um, so and and you mentioned uh, other t- other companies that you've been following. Are there is there anyone you would want to call out as someone you're kind of following in the space or you might admire uh, some of the things that they're doing right now?
1: Yeah. Oh man. So many. Um, I mean, specifically in the software world, I would say like Pluto bio and watershed are really good ones. Um, uh, in fact, I would even say like Ronnie powers, who's like the founder of Pluto would be a really good candidate for this podcast. Uh, inspirational leader. She's, she's really great.
0: Oh, um, nice! Always looking yeah, for new guests. So. <laughs> I would definitely reach
1: out to her. I think she would be a good one. Yeah, uh, I love that. And then uh, there is a company uh, called Chromatic that are they're working on uh, kind of being the interface to engage with CROs or CDMOs or even like your external partners because we're realizing that research is very distributed now. You know, not everyone does everything in house. So they're this really great. Kind of cloud platform that can help negotiate that space, uh, both for academic researchers and people in industry. Um, yeah, excited about Chromatic.
0: Yeah, that's a neat one to follow. And a similar company in that space is Science Exchange, that's been a- around for, I think, over a decade. Um, they're just, you know, a-, a platform that helps streamline your contracts with. Um, yeah. These CROs that that Vega mentioned. Um, so, having spent some time interacting with AlphaFold, it sounds like you know you were part of the the rollout for this integration on Benchling. Um, and of course, there's been a lot of discussion around AI for biology uh, in the Twitter sphere and beyond right now. I'm really curious, like your own perception of these tools and you know how far they get us at this current point in time if that makes sense um like how how enthusiastic are you about new tools like alphafold and what they give us on the kind of tangible biology side oh man
1: um great question Uh, Probably loaded because I think different people will have different opinions. Um, I am I am super excited. Like I I definitely see uh, a lot of potential there, uh, partly because we're seeing just the types of uh, drugs that get approved by the FDA tend to be are becoming more and more sort of targeted. And the modalities in drugs we see are getting more and more sort of hybrid and complex, right? Um, to understand those better, we need to do high-throughput work. And that's very expensive and hard to do in labs. So having computational tools help us get there, uh, you know, sort of doing in-silico screening, that type of stuff, I think it's it's 100% going to be accelerating drug discovery. Um do I see drugs uh, being discovered entirely computationally? No, uh, not not anytime soon. Maybe. I, I don't know if that would happen in my lifetime. We always have to do those sort of screenings and tests and uh, studies in lab. But can we accelerate them? Can we assist them with AI tools? Yeah, 100%. And we already see companies doing that, like in Citro and recursion are really good examples. They're Basically, doing that. So, um, I, I'm I'm also seeing a pattern in like bigger pharmaceutical companies investing a ton in AI ML type research, either by building these like excellence centers within the organization, um, partnering with companies like Microsoft, or even like acquiring just AI ML companies. Right. So, to, I'm I'm very excited about the use of the technology to accelerate drug discovery. Um but also sort of you know cautiously optimistic that mm-hmm. uh we'll we'll always need to do lab work, but we're always gonna have that like uh experimental side.
0: Yeah, yeah. Very, very measured view, I think, and, <laughs> and similar to my own. Um, so I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um so I wanna get back to your career journey you've gone through you know a few transitions as far as you know working on on different subjects and working for different companies um do you have any advice for listeners out there who are interested in breaking into this world of software for biology or just in general people who are maybe considering kind of alternative career paths to academia
1: yeah definitely um I guess, starting with going from academia to industry. And it, I honestly think it's, for anyone thinking about it, it's worth exploring why you want to do it. Uh, I know for a lot of people, it's completely practical. They're like, you, you can just decide where to live and get paid more than academic research. And so it allows you just a better quality of life, like if you go to industry. And that's a perfectly good reason to want an industry job. Um, The nice thing about it is that you can choose your role. There are so many different types of roles in biotech that you can really choose your adventure. And also what you decide originally isn't what you need to end up doing forever, right? Um, If you pick tenure track as as a thing to do, you're kind of going to be doing similar things possibly till the end of your career. Um, with the industry, you have the opportunity to reinvent yourself. If you decide that there's something you want to do more, um, my advice would be to really think about, you know, both aspects of, you know, what you like to do technically, but also where your personality fits, like, what are some things that give you energy, um, I think I started to learn to do that a little later, like maybe two or three years into my industry roles, um, and I'm I'm glad I did. Um, for breaking into product, I think for me it was it was easy. It, well, the, the easy part was like I would I just talked to people that were in product because I was interested in it, and just got like great perspectives and great advice on what to do, and then. Honestly, uh, I think like communicating to your management or where you work that this is your interest is is very healthy because even if they can't immediately like provide that option to you, you can, they know in their mind that that's where you want to go. And so a lot of companies, like if they do have, if you're in a technical role uh, and you want to be breaking into, you know, product or program management or even like project management, um, having that technical background one is really helpful. It helps you in that role. But then just communicating with people around you that you're interested in that is, I I highly recommend that. Um, Because transitioning into that role in the company that you already know about is much better than kind of going out cold, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I think, I I love that you really focused on communication. I think that's a big part of these high functioning teams, like you talked about, that are, you know, pulling on the strengths of people from different backgrounds, people on the biology side or the software side, and really being able to produce that high quality product like Benchling has. Um, I have another question. And, uh, you know, we can, I don't know if this is like something that is easy to answer, But as someone outside of Benchling, who's kind of aware of, you know, the platform being used by all of these different, you know, groups, organizations around the world, biologists, um, what I think about is just the wealth of data that um, the the company could have access to. Um, And I know from a previous guest on the podcast, Casey Craft. Um, who was actually one of my very first guests, Um, she talked about how during uh, the pandemic, Benchling actually rolled out these templates um, to share with different groups to be able to do COVID testing, um, which I thought was such a great kind of example of uh, not an open source company per se, uh, doing something open source and um, sharing this knowledge information with others. is there anything going on uh, to kind of mine the data that is the Benchling platform?
1: Yeah, um, I think the best example I would say is uh, what we call our solutions. So Benchling, you know, you you get the product and it has the features, um, but some companies opt to get a solution. So you know, there is an antibody and protein research solution, and they're currently working on a few other solutions. Basically, what it comes with is, um, like you said, templates, but also uh, schemas and workflows that are specifically designed for that type of research, right? And um, obviously companies will still go in and add implementations that truly customize it for themselves, but it it gets you like 60 to 70% there And a lot of those templates and schemas are built off of the knowledge from the implementation team of doing like hundreds of implementations in the past. So they're building on this sort of knowledge of what are some repeating patterns we're seeing uh, when we do implementations for customers. Let's get them there faster by simply building templates that are already there that we can clone and, you know, put in your system when you sign up. Um, And so... Like I said, the antibody and protein solutions are already out, but they're working on several more uh, that apply to various areas of research. A lot of them are biopharma related, but they're also thinking about generally just like sequencing or more like agricultural applications and things like that. So there's those really collect all that knowledge built from implementations to um, accelerate what you get, you know, so that you don't spend so much time implementing stuff. Um, and also when, when the software is demoed to people, when they want to see, you know, what what can it do for me, you see a higher version of it, a, a closer to what you'll get. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And I, I'm also really interested in, again, um, not sure how much time you've spent on this side of the platform, but for researchers working on drug development, you know, the documentation that you're presenting to the FDA, um, the kind of like quality tracking and things like that are really important. Um, is that something the company is also pushing to advance, um, as far as what they can, can provide their customers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's something that's on the roadmap pretty much all the time. There's the goal is to make in- incremental improvements in the software, um, but we do have customers that are using it for that purpose already. There's a great video on Benchling's website from Dragonfly Therapeutics where they talk about you know how they use it to track stuff for IND filings. So um, some customers are able to use it for that, but yeah, totally this incremental improvements constantly being made in that direction.
0: Awesome. I'll, I'll make sure to link that video. That sounds really interesting. Um, Vega, we've spent a lot of time talking about your career, all the exciting software that you've worked on. What's one thing outside of work that you love doing? I don't have as
1: much time for this in my life now, but I used to be uh, very into like ping pong or as you know, People in the sport will call it table tennis. Um, I played competitively for years. Uh, I was on the Berkeley team. and went to nationals. Wow. (laughs) And like when I was in grad school, I I played professionally as a side gig to kind of like make extra money um, at a very popular ping pong club called Spin. um, That's in downtown Seattle. Um yeah so that's been like part of my life for a while actually I uh, in my PhD acknowledgement I like thank the Seattle table tennis club
0: no way <laughs>
1: cuz it was su- it was such a great outlet you know like um it was something to do outside of the academic circle and uh, yeah it's just a great tight community And in Seattle and in the bay area there's just great ping pong community wow
0: i love that and I imagine you're like extremely good then if you were playing competitively.
1: I I feel like I every time I think I'm good, I get calibrated by mm. like getting beat by someone like that's a ten year old. So <laughs> there's there's a range of skills out there.
0: <laughs> there's yeah. always
1: someone that humbles me.
0: <laughs> wow. Awesome. Well, it, it's it been great to get to know you a little bit better. And I hope that our listeners um, learned so much from your experience at Benchling and in your graduate work and across your career transitions. Um, where can folks find you online?
1: Um, so I think we already mentioned the Substack, the Aliquot. I'm trying to write you know, something once a month. Um, and I also do a lot of co-writing. So if someone's interested in writing something with me, like one of the things that I talked about, reach out. Um, I'm also on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Um, yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you for having
1: me. This was really great.
0: I'm going to go ahead and That wraps up my conversation with Vega Shah. Thank you so much for listening to Lady Scientist podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could click subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode if you found it useful. And one more shout out for LabDAO, which sponsored this episode. LabDAO has an ecosystem and a software tool called Plex. Uh, You can run everything just from your laptop and try out some of the latest and greatest tools for biologists. So really encourage you to go check that out. And thanks so much for listening to Lady Scientist Podcast.